Welcome back to Never Forget Radio. Today will be the first episode of what I hope will be a recurring collaborative series re-examining post-9-11 art. That is, art that self-consciously tries to deal with the attacks or their aftermath, especially concentrated in the years immediately afterwards. But we're also going to cover pre-9-11 art, which is to say things from before 2001 whose meaning has changed or that seem to point towards or is some for some reason now ironically relevant since September 11th. I'm not an expert or authority, and I really want to drive that home by inviting anyone and all of you to contribute to this podcast and to be part of the show. This could take many forms, conversations, interviews, essays, songs, sketches, radio plays, anything you can think of. This first episode features Marcus Brown, Rebecca Catherine Hirsch, and of course the series comes with its own theme you are the maker of by Old Table. Please join all of us. You are the- You are the maker of your culture. You are the maker, make it what you will. You are the maker of your culture. Build it up and around what you feel. To start off, I thought we'd look at a novel that's set between 2000 and 2001. Here's a small quotation from the first chapter, Loomings. But wherefore it was that after having repeatedly smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage. This, the invisible police officer of the fates, who has the constant surveillance of me and secretly dogs me and influences me in some unaccountable way, he can better answer than anyone else. And doubtless, my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as sort of a brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. I take it that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. Whaling voyage by one Ishmael. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. It's clear that... Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States is referring to the 2000 election between Bush and Gore, unable to be decided by the voters, the recounts, the lawsuits, the Florida Supreme Court, finally decided 5-4 to four by the U.S. Supreme Court in December 2000. And bloody battle in Afghanistan clearly refers to the beginning of the war there, October 2001 to present. And so the placement of this intervening event, Whaling Voyage by one Ishmael, clearly situates the action of the novel right between December 2000 and October 2001. And so for this first collaborative episode on post-9-11 art, I'd like to introduce friend of the podcast, Marcus Brown, and his presentation on one of the first, if not the very first post-9-11 novel, Moby Dick or the Whale by Herman Melville. Out of all the works of art that came out in the 2001-2003 era, I have to say that Moby Dick by the little-known author Herman Melville is the most prescient, ambitious, and memorable. The story concerns the journey of Ishmael, a brooding, intelligent college dropout who decides to enlist on a ship bound for a war. The author magnificently never obliquely states where exactly it is that Ishmael is headed. Possibly Iraq? Afghanistan? We'll never quite know for sure because the action of the book pertains to the events that trespass on the ship, the Pequod, on its voyage towards certain doom. Ishmael's journey begins on a fictitious maritime base in the city of New Bedford, where he stumbles into town on a dark, foreboding night, 
looking for a warm meal and a quiet place to stay. After following the main drag, he comes upon a few trendy hotels and hostels that he makes completely clear he plans to avoid. Ishmael's antagonism of the garish music emanating from the MTV-saturated bro bars immediately makes him relatable. He is, in a very real sense, the audience surrogate. So wherever you go, Ishmael, said I to myself as I stood in the middle of the jury street, shouldering my bag and comparing the gloom towards the north with the darkness towards the south. Wherever in your wisdom you may conclude to lodge for the night, my dear Ishmael, be sure to inquire the price, and don't be too particular. Eventually, Ishmael ends up at a hotel on the black side of town where he takes up a room and has a one-night stand with a man named Queequeg who also came to New Bedford in order to ship out. The next day, Ishmael and Queequeg enlist. There's even a subtle reference to the Don't Ask, Don't Tell that's hardly picked up by most critics of the era. Ishmael and Queequeg are put aboard a ship called the Pequod, where the rest of the story takes place. The ship is a top-of-the-line military vessel. On the ship, Ishmael meets the four mates that are in command, all symbolic in one way or another of actual personages from the Bush administration. There's Stubb, standing in for Wolf Wits, a flippin' gregarious deputy of the ship, ready and willing to take the crew to the jaws of death without any hope of return. Flask, as the Rumsfeld, quick to start a fight, even on the thinnest of circumstances. Starbuck as the Colin Powell, maybe the only one of the four mates to have any scruples towards the endeavor at hand. And lastly, enter Ahab. Oh, it's so hard to remember. Welcome to Never Forget Radio, where, from the comfort of your own home or your device, and from the safety of the future, we can revisit the memory of 9-11, of George W. Bush, and of all the years associated with both sins. It's been over a decade of disappointment, failure, and disaster. I'm no expert, but I'll be your host as we explore our recent past and try to reclaim it. Let's roll. Moby Dick is about violence, abandonment, unwinnable struggle, quixotic questing, ecological exploitation, religious obsession, messianism, the limits of executive power, and oil. So it's pretty relevant to the post-9-11 era. It seemed an obvious choice to begin this series. Although it might have been published in 1851, it clearly predicts 9-11. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. Of course, there are specific canonical historical events that Ishmael Melville could easily have been talking about. 2000 was not the only U.S. presidential election to be grandly contested or defined by mass voter suppression. Indeed, the 1824 election between John Quincy Adams and Melville's hero Andrew Jackson was so tight that it went to the House of Representatives. And because of millennia of invasion by occupying colonial imperialist powers, there have been bloody battles in Afghanistan since Alexander the Great. In the 19th century, the British and Russian empires contested their great game there. 
even though I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I don't believe that you can fully look at an event like 9-11 logically, completely logically, completely linearly, completely historically. I rarely find lists of events a compelling way to think about the past, but that's how it's usually presented. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. <laughs> we didn't start the fire. No, we didn't. That's all I know of the chorus. Birth uh, Control, Ho Chi Minh, Richard Nixon back again, Moonshot, Woodstock, Watergate, Punk Rock, Dylan, Reagan, Reagan, Palestine, Terror on the Airline, Ayatollahs in Iran, Russians in Afghanistan, Wheel of Fortune, Sally Ride. Um, something, something, something about a suicide. AIDS, crack, burning guts, hyperdermics on the shore, and China's under martial law. I can't take it anymore. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. Though we didn't make it, we're trying to take it. (laughs) I don't actually know the whole chorus. That was Rebecca Catherine Hirsch with a rendition of We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, written in 1889-1989. I don't just dislike this song because it gets stuck in your head. This isn't just a popular song, it's a historical approach. A pretty good stand-in for how high schools teach history. A list of significant names, dates, events, literary works, great authors, opening lines to famous novels, without... Context, meaning, elaboration, exploration, counterfactuals, conspiracy theories, or refutations. That would be like reducing this whale-sized novel to a list of events. John Adams back again, British in Afghanistan. If there's one settled story of how we got here, it means that today is a logical result, preordained, divinely backed, the best and only possibility. You two, Sigmund Reed, and Kennedy, Chubby Chicka Psycho, Belgium's in the Congo. I love the way he said that. It's like, oh God, I was there. I remember that we share something. I mean, it's like, I guess for, I mean, this was like on a very small level, like maybe what other people feel at the stadium going USA, USA, I was like, yes, when like a, when a singer like, is like, let's go Wisconsin, and everyone in Wisconsin's like, it's like me, and so I'm just showing everyone who was at the Bay of Pigs, and he remembers Richard Nixon, and who is familiar with the Belgians being in the Congo. Well, I was really, Belgians in the Congo, not only does your voice sound great when you say that, but I remember learning that, so the song is about me too. I'm implicated, I'm part of history, this is my story. Well, you are implicated. You are part of history. Send your story to Never Forget Radio. Appear on this podcast. We have an opportunity here to re-examine art and recent history and to preserve the culture of our own period. Not necessarily what was successful, but rather what we wish had been successful and what we deem significant. And what we think is wrong with the stuff that's been canonized. Because I expect that rather than this broad, non-linear, non-literal approach, 9-11 and post-9-11 history will be taught to generations of students as this Billy Joel-style narrative. George Bush back again, U.S. and Afghanistan. Now, with Melvillian tangent accomplished, 
We return to Moby Dick or the Whale, published 2003, reviewed by Marcus Brown. Enter Ahab. The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereon my soul is grooved to run. Over unsounded gorges, through the rifled hearts and mountains, and to torrents beds, unerringly I rush. Ahab appears when the soldiers are a good distance away from America. There's even debate amongst most critics on whether or not he actually exists. He appears a la Big Brother on a television screen. He feeds the soldiers an obsessive hate for their enemy, an explosive vitriol that binds everyone on board. Their anger exacerbated by the constant reference to Fadula, a dark Middle Eastern conjuration created by Ahab, a straw man if there ever was one. Ahab uses him as a scapegoat, their always present enemy. A race notorious for a certain diabolism of subtlety, and by some honest mariners supposed to be the paid spies and secret confidential agents on the water of the devil, their lord, whose countergrim they supposed to be elsewhere. For Ishmael, who intimately understands the transformation happening to him and his shipmates, Ahab pulls out the central fear in them, the fear of being alive yet unfocused, adrift in the gray, swirling oblivion that surrounds them. Ahab gives them a sense of purpose and urgency to counter the horrifying boredom and relentless terror of being alive. The horrifying boredom and relentless terror of being alive. The book begins with the narrator going to sea to avoid shooting himself. One of Melville's next works was Bartleby the Scrivener, about a Wall Street clerk who prefers to starve to death rather than continue to work. Moby Dick was not a success. After its poor reception, Melville's career went downhill, and he ended up working like his character Bartleby as a clerk on Wall Street in the U.S. Customs Office. He self-published some poems in his later years, he shared them with friends and family, and when he died they found a whole unprinted manuscript of a novel, Billy Budd, but in the 19 years he held this job, Melville never released another full book. If a 40-year-old Tin Pan Alley songwriter, William Joel, was writing some kind of vaudeville number or a proto-ragtime broadsheet ballad in 1889 about significant events in his life and the narrative of his generation, he wouldn't have selected Herman Melville or Moby Dick. No one would have known what he was talking about. The book didn't become a classic and the great American novel until literary revisionist modernists rediscovered it in the 1920s. Melville died in 1891, totally unimmortalized in popular song, so forgotten that he only received a one-line obituary in the New York Times, which misspelled Moby Dick. But enough about that little-known 19th century author of Moby Dick, M-O-B-I-E. Let's go back to Marcus Brown and the 21st century Moby Dick, M-O-B-Y. At this point in time, the story relaxes in its unrelenting tension and embraces the tactics of historical realism that have been the staple of contemporary artists ranging from Pynchon to Dave Foster Wallace. The narrative takes a back seat as Ishmael describes in great detail the various instruments of war. The newfangled RPGs and Humvees, the fighter planes, the weapons, 
He essentially builds up his environs piece by piece, microchip by microchip, bringing to mind a Miltonian list of his heavenly army, or a Homeric summary of the Blackbeak ships bound for Troy. This is war, impersonal, savage, but with such flowery prose that you could almost imagine Melville as a romantic poet from the 1800s. He is able to make technical language both personal and poetic, and occasionally with humor. See the monkey rope chapter, describing an integral intermittent piece required for the preparation of the M4 combine rifle. Therefore, that here was a sort of interregnum of providence. I, for its even-handed equity, never could have unsanctioned so gross an injustice. I saw this as the precise situation of everything that breathes, as one or another this Siamese connection with plurality. From 1871 to 78, Melville was bizarrely connected with his boss at the Customs House. Maybe you'll recognize his name from that William Joel proto-ragtime broadsheet. He was much more famous than Melville during his lifetime. The New York Times didn't misspell anything in his obituary. He was later the President of the United States, Chester A. Arthur. You remember. Garfield blown away, what else do I have to say? No? Well, he's hardly as famous as Herman Melville is today. Their fortunes have been romantically reversed in the meritocratic future. Even the building where they worked is now luxury apartments. 55 Wall Street became a landmark in 2002 after it was used as a medical station in temporary morgue after 9-11. It's only a few blocks from the World Trade Center. Perhaps the author of this 21st century novel worked there as a clerk. When the story kicks back into gear, it forecasts the essential doom found at the end of all voyages, near or far. After many warnings from command and aircraft carriers and battleships, the Pequod, helmed by Mad Ahab and followed by his bloodthirsty crew, march into an unwinnable battle against an unknowable foe. With Ahab bellowing out orders, the mates trying to save as many lives as they can over the constant bombardments and the tearful goodbye of Ishmael and Queequeg, as Queequeg sacrifices himself for Ishmael, the Pequod inevitably sinks with only one survivor, our faithful Ishmael, adrift and alone again, like all of us, just another lost orphan. I'd like to evoke this ending and say, well, we've gotten through the worst of it. We've made it through the post-9-11 era, but I can't. I don't think we're at any sort of end. I have to position us somewhere earlier in the novel. Passengers, crew members, caught up in the middle of a voyage for oil and death and plunder and unachievable revenge. A journey that is yet ongoing, rudderless, sometimes pausing at ports or becalmed in seas, but never stopping or deviating from a disastrous course towards an unknown, catastrophic confrontation with an unsinkable concept, an undefeatable symbol. Peace, justice, revenge, terror, still chasing after the uncapturable white whales of the post-9-11 era.
Never Forget Radio is a production of Bookstyle Publications, currently based in West Philadelphia. Podcast will appear live at the Philadelphia Podcast Festival at Tattooed Moms, 6th and South Street on Sunday, August 24th at 2 p.m. Music for this episode is by Blown Away, Old Table, and William Joel. Thanks to initial series contributors Marcus Brown, Rebecca Hirsch, William Table, and Jesse Karsten. Special thanks to Mordechai, Gatsby, Sammy Schuster, Corey McKelly, Nathan Karuna and Tegan Keating, and Paul Perry and Michelle Meyer. 55 Wall Street Plaque Photo by Aaron Pasternak. And we'd love to include you and your work on future episodes in the post-9-11 art series. Never Forget Radio on iTunes, Facebook, Gmail, Bandcamp, or Tumblr or Never Forget Pod on Twitter. Today's quote is writing advice from Herman Melville. One often hears of writers that rise and swell with their subject, though it may seem but an ordinary one. How then, with me writing of this Leviathan? Unconsciously, my chirography expands into placard capitals. Give me a condor's quill. Give me Vesuvius's crater for an inkstand. Friends, hold my arms, for in the mere act of penning my thoughts of this Leviathan, they weary me and make me faint with their outreaching comprehensiveness of sweep, as if to include the whole circle of the sciences in all the generations of whales and men and mastodons past, present, and to come, with all the revolving panoramas of empire on earth and throughout the whole universe, not excluding its suburbs. Such and so magnifying is the virtue of a large and liberal theme. We expand to its bulk to produce a mighty book. You must choose a mighty theme. No great and enduring volume can ever be written on the flea, though many there be who have tried it. Thank you, and never forget. What is the fire? It's like the world is really fiery and, you know, messed up, but we didn't start it. It's not our responsibility. We can just talk about it and record it in a litany, but not try to change it. We didn't start it, but it's there and we have to deal with it. But it's like our legacy, and it's important because of the music. <laughs> um, can I sing again? <laughs> Joseph Stalin. Ooh, ow, sorry, hold on. <laughs> Joseph Stalin, Malenkov, Nazarene, Prokofiev, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist, Block, Roy Cohn, Juan Perón, Tuscany, Dacron, Jam Jam, Foo Falls, Rock Around the Clock, Einstein, James Bean, Brooklyn's got a winning team, Davy Crockett, Peter Van, Elvis Presley, Disneyland, Bardot, Budapest, Alabama, Cruise, Princess Grace. I always thought it was sewage. Trouble in the sewage. <laughs> okay, next. <clears throat> ah.